me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. According to a recent poll, do you know what the greatest fear is for most people? What do you suppose the greatest fear is? You would think it would be death. But that's actually number two on the list. People fear something more than death. And that is public speaking. Most people would rather die than stand up in front of their peers and have to speak. Have you ever, uh, have you ever felt inadequate to communicate a message to someone? Some of you may have the gift of gab and you can stand up in front of people and talk with confidence about anything even if you don't know uh, the subject. But if you're like most people, you are terrified to speak in front of people. You are terrified to speak with boldness. And the reason I think that we're afraid to stand up in front of people is because we all want to be accepted by other people. We want people to uh, give their approval of us. And so we're very careful about what we say. And we know that if we say something the wrong way, then people will think of us differently or wrongly and may have a bad impression of us. We want their approval. I can still remember the first sermon that I ever preached. It was um, not too long after I got out of high school, probably 19 or 20 years old, and it was in our small church that I grew up in. And... um, I'm ashamed to say that at that time, my number one goal was to please people. I wanted to make sure everybody liked me. And so I designed my sermon around it. Well, there was a passage that we looked at, but the majority of it was so that people would like the way that I presented it, that they would like my jokes, and all these things. And so that's what I did. I filled it up with jokes and anecdotes and was making people laugh. And at the end of the service, a young lady came up to me and said, you know, you are a much better speaker than our pastor because he's really boring. And you know, that was exactly what I wanted to hear. I didn't care if God's name was magnified. I didn't care what kind of truth was was proclaimed at that time. All I cared about was me. I wanted to get approval um, from, from the audience to whom I was speaking. But when Jesus speaks, it's totally different. When Jesus speaks, He speaks with authority. He's not concerned with the reaction of the crowd necessarily. He's concerned about the truth that is being proclaimed. And the power of of His message did not come from His delivery. It did not come from His great stories that he, He gave. It came from the truth that He proclaimed. And I would suggest to you that every message, the power of any message, is not in the speaker or in his delivery. It is in the words. The power of the message is in the words. So let me read for you Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, because I want to show you this morning that we must, must speak the words of Christ because there is power in them. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue, that is Jesus. And he began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. What we'll see today is that we must, we must speak the words of Christ because there, are power, there is power in His words. So that is how we can have power in our words as well. The first thing I want you to see is the nature of Christ's teaching. You see that in verse 21. The nature of His teaching. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath He entered the synagogue and began to teach. Jesus, in, throughout His life, was about teaching. We, if we said that, if we looked at Jesus' life and we determined, okay, what did he come to do? There are many answers that we could have to that. We could say that he came to give his life, which is true. We could say that he came to do miracles, to show his power. We would say, yes, that's true. But I believe that the most important reason, um, maybe, the, maybe next to uh, giving his life, was to teach. His primary ministry while he was on earth, while he was alive, was to teach. Look down to uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And you'll see that, that although miracles were very prominent within his ministry, his main ministry was teaching. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Getting up, he, Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach to them. See, Mark tells us that this was his custom, that he this was the customary thing that he would do. He would be teaching these people. Look over to chapter 14, verse 49. Chapter 14, verse 49. Jesus is speaking to the chief priests. Um, in verse 49, He says, Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize Me. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. So every day I was with you in the temple teaching. This is what Jesus was doing. Turn back to Mark chapter 1. You'll find in other parts of the Gospel that that Jesus was going throughout all the cities, Matthew 9.35, going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus came to minister the gospel to people. He came to teach people. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 1, we find, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is referred to as the Word of God. Now, why wouldn't he be referred to as the miracle worker or the, the man who died for our sins? He's not referred to that to in John as that. He's referred to as the Word because he basically is coming with a message. He is the perfect revelation of God. And so he is referred to as the Word. He is coming with a message on behalf of God and and what you'll find throughout all of Scripture is whenever there is a significant event 
in the history of the Bible, you'll find that there's always someone there to interpret that message. When you had the crossing of the Red Sea, you had Moses that was there to interpret what was going on, to show the people of Israel that this was God working. This was God that was leading them. When you have Jesus coming to earth and and, uh, planning to die and to be raised three days later, you have Jesus and, and then later the apostles who come and interpret this message. They say this was the event that happened. Jesus died and He rose again. And this is why it happened. And this is what it means for you. And Jesus was, was that same way. He was here to interpret a message, to, to bring a message from God. And as it was His com- custom, on the Sabbath day, we see here in verse 21, that He entered the synagogue. He went in to speak. And what would happen, uh, the customary uh, practice in that day was for the, the synagogue leaders to invite a speaker. So Jesus must have already been well known enough to be able to be invited to speak. You couldn't just stand up and, and speak necessarily. You would be invited to, to speak and to interpret either a given portion of Scripture or one of your choosing. And so this is what Jesus did. He went to the, the synagogue to, to speak and this was His custom. So that's the nature of His teaching. In verse 22, we see the power of His teaching says, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, in order for us to see the power of Christ's teaching, we need to see how the scribes were teaching. Because it says that Jesus was not teaching as the scribes. He actually had authority in his speech. I, when we first looked at this, um, this book of Mark, we went through the overview several weeks ago. I said that the customary practice of the scribes and the Pharisees was to speak on behalf of someone else. So what they would do is they would come in and they would speak and then they would um, basically quote some former rabbi or some former writing and that was where they got their authority. But what you'll find with Jesus in His teaching is that He doesn't speak on behalf of of some other authority, some other previous human who was around, or some other previous writing other than the Scriptures, which is actually God's Word. But he would speak on his own authority, didn't he? Many times he would say, remember from the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said this, but what does he say? But I say to you. And Jesus is doing this very thing before these Jews in the synagogue. He's saying, I say to you, This is based on the authority that I have. And when these people saw this, they were amazed. That's what it says here in verse 22. It says they were amazed at His teaching because He was teaching as one with authority. He wasn't saying, footnote here, this is from X. This is from this other person. This is from this right. No, He was doing it on His own authority and He was speaking with power. And the content of His message was the message of the kingdom. We saw that in verses 14 and 15. Jesus came saying, The time is fulfilled, verse 15, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus had was speaking with authority because He was speaking on behalf of God. Because He is God. So, why would Jesus perform these miracles? If His primary ministry while He was alive was to teach, then why the miracles? Well, I think that the miracles were simply there to authenticate His message. 
He was not trying to impress people to gain a larger following. He was authenticating his message because if someone could perform miracles such as the ones that he performed, healing the blind, the lame, the sick, removing demons, raising the dead, who else could do that besides God alone? You see, so he was authenticating his message. So the primary thing that he was doing was proclaiming this message and the way in which he was supporting that message was through his miracles. So his authoritative deeds or his miracles authenticated his authoritative message. So this is what we see in verses 23 through 26, the validation, the validation of his teaching. The first thing that we see in these verses is the opposition to his teaching in verses 23 and 24. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, why would this man who is demon-possessed be afraid of Jesus, destroying him? Was that the normal pattern? Would Jesus send these people to the abyss or what? How did they, how did they know what was going on? Notice what the demon says through this man in verse 24. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? So he's speaking in the plural, meaning he's speaking on behalf of more than just himself. Now, we do have instances where there was a legion of demons that possessed one person. That's possible in this case. But I would suggest that he's basically speaking on behalf of the demonic realm. He's saying, what business do you have with us demons coming to this earth and trying to expel us from it? It's, it's interesting that these demons recognized who Jesus was. Did you notice that he, he both knew Jesus' name, verse 24, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? And then he, he knew what Jesus was like. At the end of verse 24, it says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He recognized Jesus' sinfulness or sinlessness, the Holy One, and his deity, that he was God, the Holy One of God. The demon recognized that. Now, there's some debate as to why he was saying these names. It could be that the demon was trying to take power over him. And usually the understanding in that day was that if you knew that person's name, that you could claim authority over them. So perhaps he was trying to claim authority over Jesus, but it's, it's not uh, explicitly clear. So what we need to do now is we need to look at demon possession and what does it look like and how we respond to it. Because we have an explicit case in Scripture where there was a demon. What is demon possession? Well, demon possession is simply demon controlling a person, a demon controlling a person. It's the opposite, the complete opposite of being controlled or filled with the Spirit. We as believers have the Holy Spirit and He fills us up to the point where He controls what we do. Where we are responding in love to people that we would otherwise hate. Where we are responding with acceptance of the truth that we would otherwise reject. That is how the Spirit fills us. Well, the demons fill unbelievers in the same way. In, in a case like this, the demon actually comes into the person and fills him up and controls him in a way. 
Now, how is it that we can detect demon possession? Because I don't know about you, but I haven't come across someone who is demon possessed, at least that I was aware of. But I'm, I'm, uh, I've heard from missionaries and others that it certainly does take place in our world, in our day. So how do we detect if someone is demon-possessed? The first thing that you'll notice is a distinct presence of another personality displayed in a coherent voice. Notice this man is actually, or this demon is actually speaking through this man's voice. He says, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? So he's actually speaking through this man's vocal cord. It could have been, uh, like we often think about it, a, a completely different voice. But the thing that should be clear when we come across a person that is demon-possessed is that they'll have a distinct personality. Secondly, they will have clairvoyance. That is simply possession of supernatural spiritual knowledge. All the people of that day didn't recognize who Jesus... Most of the people, I should say, did not recognize who Jesus was. And that yet this man, without being told, knew his name, Jesus of Nazareth, and who he was, the Holy One of God. So he had supernatural spiritual knowledge. And so that's the second uh, way in which we can detect if someone is demon-possessed. The third way is that they would also have some sort of physical malady. You'll find throughout the Gospels that these people who are demon-possessed, and even in the, the, the book of Acts, that, that they'll have things like mental derangement, or unable to speak. The demon was not allowing them to speak at all. Or blindness. Or epilepsy. Or moral impurity. Or remember in Mark chapter 5, verse 4, superhuman strength. Remember they tried to bind this man with the demon? And they could not. No amount of chains could bind this man because he had some sort of superhuman strength. And that was a, a direct result of the demon possession. Now, when we go through that list, you, you might be thinking, well, I know a blind person. Does that mean he's demon-possessed? Or I know someone that has uh, some sort of mental illness or is mute or whatever. Does that mean that they're demon-possessed? Let me have you look at verse 34. Because I want to show you that there is a, a distinction between those who are sick, have various diseases, and those who have demons. doesn't necessarily mean that these are... Um, these are joined together. Jesus, and He, Jesus, healed many who were ill with various diseases. And then notice there's a distinction here. And cast out many demons. Now, while it is true that those with demon possession do have some physical malady, it is not necessarily true. It is not true that those with various diseases always have demon possession. So we should not make that logical jump when it's not uh, when it's not explicit in Scripture, when it's not even clear in Scripture. In fact, the Scriptures say the exact opposite. I could show you several others. In fact, Matthew chapter four verse twenty two twenty four distinguishes those who have uh, epilepsy with and those who are paralytics from uh, those who have demons. So we will talk about that a little bit more next week when we um, we look at some of the some more of Jesus' miracles that he performs. I just wanted to make that clear as I was going through. But So basically, the three things are that they will have a distinct personality, a person who is demon-possessed, a distinct personality, supernatural spiritual strength, and some sort of physical malady. Now, what should our response be to demon possession? 
If we come across someone who is demon-possessed, what should we do? Should we try to cast that demon out in the name of Jesus? What should we do? Well, I think the primary response that we should have, and I, I hope you'll recognize this, that when Satan attacks himself, when Satan himself attacks, what should our response be? Do we attack back? Do we try to defeat Satan? No, Satan is much more powerful than we are. So no amount of people could defeat Satan. The Scriptures are clear. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When we, we have the whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, we recognize that those are primarily defensive weapons. We are, are defensive armor. We are to, to, to defend ourselves against Satan. So I would suggest that the, our response to demon possession should be one of resisting, not trying to defeat them, because God has not given us authority over demon possession. God has not done that. And so our responsibility, should, our response to it should be to resist. So if you ever come across a person who is demon possessed, you run from there and pray. That's all you have to do. Don't worry about trying to defeat him because that is something that is outside of our spiritual responsibility. In verses 25 and 26, we now come to the authority of Jesus to cast out demons. After this demon approaches him, we find, And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. This miracle was unprecedented in history. There was no record in the Old Testament of someone casting out a demon. Now, there were people who were demon-possessed at times. Remember, King Saul had an evil spirit. And David would come to play music and God would remove that evil spirit from him as he would play. But, but there's, no, there's no indication from the Old Testament that someone actually had authority to remove a demon from a person. Jesus had, had been the first to do this. Now, how could He have authority over this demon? Turn to Mark chapter 3, verse 27. And you'll see that the reason that Jesus has authority over the demon is because Jesus has authority over Satan. Jesus says, "...but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property." unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. The point that Jesus is making is that in order for him to have authority over anything on this earth, because remember, this is an, a, a world that is controlled in a sense by Satan. Remember, Satan is referred to as the God, small g, of this world. He is the God of this world. He is in control in a sense. Obviously, God is in control over Satan, but he is the God of this world. And so, in order for Jesus to have authority over anything, you and me, over anyone who's demon-possessed, over any problem in this world, he has to first go and bind the strong man. The strong man being the devil. So the reason that Jesus has authority over all demons is because he has authority over, over Satan himself. And notice how quickly the demon obeyed. In verse 26, Jesus says, Be quiet, come out of him. Then verse 26 of chapter 1, 
Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. It's interesting that the demon did not say, hmm, let me think about this for a second. Jesus said to come out of him, but let me weigh the pros and cons. Let me see if I stay in, this will happen. If I go... No, he didn't have time to do that because Jesus has authority over him. And when he made the command, his only response would could be to come out of him. And that's exactly what happened. The demon was compelled to obey. There's no magic formula that Jesus used. There was no magical touch. It was simply with the sound of his voice. He said, be quiet and come out of him. And the result of Jesus' teaching and his power is in verses 27 and 28. There's two primary results. First of all, there is amazement. We also saw that up in verse 22. They were amazed at his teaching. Verse 27 repeats it. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Jesus' teaching produced amazement because it was unlike any teaching they had ever heard before. It was a teaching that had come directly from God. And and what you'll find throughout Mark's Gospel is that people are constantly amazed at His teaching. They are astonished. In fact, 18 times in this short Gospel, you you find those two words, amazement and astonishment, as a result of what Jesus had done. But the second result, not only amazement by the people, but also popularity. Verse 28. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. We'll see what that means next week, that as a result of his popularity, people come in droves trying to get healed by him, having demons removed from their family members. And what we have here is the breaking down of the reign of Satan. You see, Satan, in a sense, has power over this world, and yet... Jesus has greater power because He, as God, came in the form of a human. He entered our race so that He could, uh, so that he could reign over our race. He entered into our race, which, which was controlled by Satan in a limited sense. And now He was removing the power that Satan has so that now we as believers can have power over sin. Apart from Christ, we have no power over sin. And so what we see here is that, that there, are, there is power in the words of Christ. And so our response should be that we should speak the words of Christ to other people. And there will be power in our words as well. We will not have to stand with fear before people. We will not have to worry about getting up in public and speaking because we are speaking words with authority. Not because it's something devised by our own human wisdom, but because it's from the very words of God. And we must believe and understand the words that we are proclaiming. Otherwise, it won't mean anything. It won't mean anything to us and it probably won't mean anything to the people to whom we are speaking. We will be like a pilot who... Let's say I were an airline pilot and I said, you know what, I've visited every airport or I've visited every city that has an airport in this country and yet I've never gotten off my plane. I land in the city that that has the airport and I just get back up and fly to the next city. 
I haven't really visited the city. I haven't got, gotten out and visited the sites and seen all the different things. And, and the same thing is true when it comes to our message. We must not be hardened to truth so that we get to a point where we don't even feel it, where we're just taking truth and mimicking, mimicking it to someone else. Well, I heard this said, so here you go. This is for you. See how, that, how you take that when it's never even affected us. We have to allow it to affect us. It's not so much that we should uh, possess God's truth, but it is that God's truth should possess us. It should be a part of us. And so let me give you two implications, two things that we can learn from this, um, this passage of Scripture this morning. Number one, in order for us to give Scripture to people, we have to know Scripture. seems kind of obvious, but it's true. In order for us to give Scripture to people, we have to know it for ourselves. How can we expect to explain truth to other people if we don't know it for ourselves? We have to know how we can give the Gospel to other people. And that's why I think this class this morning during Sunday school has been so helpful. And that is that we understand and know these verses and truths that we are explaining to others. We can't just recite something that we've learned it has, to be, have, it has to have gripped us and we have to know these verses for ourselves. We can't just know general truth. God saves sinners. Well, that's helpful, but what happens if someone has a question that's specific? A question that's specific about their problem. Are you going to be able to answer it with the truth from God's Word? The Bible says, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of those sin is death. And that we must be born again. And that we must repent and believe in the Gospel. And that Jesus says, whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, then we will be saved. We have to know Scripture in order to give Scripture to other people. Secondly, we can have power through our words. We can have power through our words. There was a man who who uh, asked another man, he said, hey, what's your favorite orchestral piece? What's your favorite symphony? And he said, well, I like the Brandenburg Concerto. And so he said, well, why don't, you, why don't you give that to me? Tell me what it sounds like. And the man began to whistle the tune of this symphony. And as he was whistling, he's thinking how foolish it was for him to be whistling a tune with with that was so much more complex than his, his one-line melody that he was whistling. And yet what happens, the beauty of music, is that on the other side, this man was hearing a whistle, but he was responding, or his mind was, was thinking about all these different is instruments, percussions and brass and strings, and he was able to, to, to hear that orchestra in his head. And that is exactly the way that, that the Holy Spirit works with the message of the Gospel. We sometimes feel so inadequate, don't we, when we stand up before somebody and say, this is the message from the very mouth of God. Here it is for you. And then we say it and we say, how foolish must I sound because I can't speak as God speaks. And yet what the Spirit does is He takes that simple whistle of a message that we are giving and He allows it in the mind of those people, the unbelievers, 
to turn into a great symphony in their ears where they can see and recognize the majesty and the glory of God. And that is exactly what He did in each of our lives when He brought salvation to us. So if we want to communicate the message of truth that Christ has given us, then it has to be a part of our lives. It must be within our hearts. We must have been gripped by it ourselves. And when it does, we will not speak apathetically or without passion, but instead we will speak with power because we're not speaking on behalf of our own wisdom or our own uh, human devices, but because of the power of Christ working in us. And you know, we have a promise from Jesus Christ. He spoke with authority throughout His whole life and then at the end of His life, Actually, after he had risen from the dead, he came back to his disciples, and the last thing that he told them was in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. He says, All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Hey, I have that authority, but I'm giving it to you now. Now, you, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And then he says this, For lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Jesus has authority. He has authority over demons. He has authority in His teaching. And He's given that authority and teaching to you. And He says that He will be with you even to the end of the age. Jesus is with us. The same authority that amazed the crowds is the same authority that Jesus has given to His church. May the Lord help us to use that authority and for us to possess that authority with great conviction and to give it with holiness and humility and energy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Jesus Christ and the message of the Gospel that He proclaimed throughout His life. We thank You that He did not come without a voice. That He didn't come and just perform a bunch of actions and never say anything throughout His whole life. But He came with a message. And His message was one of power. And we thank You that we can have confidence in, in the message that He has given to us because He is with us. And He has given us authority in, mes- in that same message. Lord, there are so many people around us that do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. There are so many people who suppress Your truth and do not want to hear it. And we need to go to them. We need to give them this message. And we pray that we would be like Jesus in the sense that we are willing to do whatever it takes for people to hear it and to understand it. We pray that our lives would be marked by such a great love for You that it would result in sharing this message to every person around us. Lord, we we are so thankful for Your grace in our lives. And we pray that that grace would be displayed to other people so that they can experience it as well. We pray that You'd help us in that way. Allow Your Spirit to work with power through the message that You've given to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you to turn to page 52.